0: Welcome to the Why God Why podcast. My name is Peter Englert. I'm one of the co-hosts of the show. We are here with our stupendous producer, Nathan Yoder, and we're also here with my friend, co-host Aaron Mercer.
1: Hey. How how do you like that? That's great. I love it. So, you know, sometimes he has used the term illustrious and whatnot. I just want to make sure that Patrick understands, you know, my friend. It's nice and simple. I like it. We'll take it. Anyways, uh, you mentioned that our guest that's here today uh, is
0: Patrick Miller. Patrick is a co host and also co author of a podcast and a book of the same title, Truth Over Tribe. And um, hey, you know, we don't shy away from the fun issues. And so today's question why doesn't Jesus fit into one political party? Aaron, have any thoughts before we just throw it over to Patrick?
1: No, I'm excited about this conversation. I think it's a I think it's always a timely conversation, but uh, particularly in right now, um, certainly it's one that I think it's a good one. And I'm very excited to hear more from Patrick about his podcast and uh, lessons learned along the way um, It's with all the conversations that we've had uh, in the political world and, and beyond. So anyways, yeah, no, uh, Patrick, I mean, it's great to have you on here with us and i know you and peter have talked a bit before but you and i haven't really talked yet and i'm sure most of our listeners haven't talked to you and i just would love to hear a little bit of your story and how did you get to uh you know how tell us a little bit about your faith journey and how did you get to this this podcast
2: yeah, that's that's great. I mean, the, the podcast did not come out of nowhere. I became a Christian when I was 19 in Columbia, Missouri, where I'm still living. I'm still a pastor. I haven't left. I love this city. I love this town. And I'm actually working at the church where I became a Christian. So I'm, I've kind of had a one-stop shop when it comes to my faith. However, you know, even in the very early years of working at this church, uh, we, we were a politically diverse congregation. Now, part of that's because Missouri is a red state and we're in a college town, so it's a blue dot in a red state. And that meant that people who are in our church could never assume that the person sitting next to them voted for the exact same person <laughs> as they did. They were Democrats, they were Republicans. And before you figured out what their politics were, you usually got to know them as a person first. And so it was hard to to judge them, especially when you know them and you love them and you care for them. But obviously, as time has gone on, as time has gone on it's become a little more difficult to to hold that broad coalition of people together. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, as a pastor and ministry leader, you know, if someone came to me to ask questions about their faith or things they're wrestling with, it'd be big theological things. You know, they'd say, Hey, t- talk to me about infant baptism versus believer's baptism. Let's talk about, you know, predestination and free will. These were the kinds of questions that I got. But those questions have changed dramatically, starting in 2016. And then, especially in 2020, they began to change absolutely dramatically, where now people are asking me for my position on LGBTQ issues and CRT and every other cultural hot topic out there. And so even if churches didn't want to talk about what we might see as quote unquote political issues, we don't have a choice because the people in our churches, they like for us to talk about it. The problem that we've faced is when we tried to answer those questions honestly, keeping Jesus in the center of the conversation, we discovered they didn't like our answers. They wanted us to sound like uh, the scriptural pages of the New York Times or the sermonizing of Tucker Carlson. And if we didn't match their favorite pundit, they would get frustrated with us. Back in 2020, after George Floyd was uh, murdered, there we had a church service like everybody else that Sunday. We have people getting onto Facebook and telling us, if you don't say anything about George Floyd, we're going to leave the church. And now we, we don't do church services by Facebook recommendation. We'd already planned what we were going to do. And because Jesus, who does define our politics, told us to mourn with those who mourn, we mourned the loss of George Floyd. And then we got the emails from the other side. Afterwards, they sent us emails saying, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that you guys would say that... Uh, police officers are racist and bigots. And we say, whoa, 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 hold on a second. We never said anything like that. We're not playing a political game. We're just trying to do the thing that Jesus called us to do. And as we reflected on those moments, we began to realize, that broadly, especially within evangelicalism, we've done a poor job of discipling people in their politics. I think for good reason. We didn't want to put obstacles in front of non-believers like, oh, you've got to believe this political uh, belief to come and be a part of our church. But the, the the net cost was that, again, people, instead of being discipled by Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount and their political outlook, they were discipled by the news media, and that began to shape their politics far more than the way of Jesus. And that's why we started Truth Over Tribes. We said we, we can can't just complain about this. We have to actively engage people and help them to um, kind of disengage from partisan politics and reorient their their conception of what the good life is and how we live together. Reorient that around Jesus and the kingdom of God.
0: Patrick, I uh, I really love <clears throat> kind of your heart and just what you're trying to do. I, I'd love to hear a little bit more of your story, though, because, um, you know, it seems like you've grown up in the Midwest your whole life. Um, you know, going to mizzou probably wasn't apparent that you're going to become a pastor so you know kind of catch us all up and you know if you were to talk to like 10 year old patrick or 15 year old patrick and you're to say hey you're hosting this like semi-controversial podcast i, I guess i'd be curious what he'd have to say so fill in the blanks on your childhood and stuff to kind of help us get to where you were at 19 and mizzou and now at this church and from there
2: Yeah. You know, I've always been on some level interested in politics and not because I I find the horse race in Washington that interesting, but because I've always been interested in justice. I, I think that we have to live life together in any nation, in any community. And how we organize that life together really matters because it determines whether we're going to flourish or whether we're going to suffer and so i I think 10 year old me might not be shocked that i cared about politics i don't know how much i knew about politics back then Um, but more broadly just my own personality i mean i was the editor-in-chief of our newspaper i don't mind wading into controversial issues i don't mind having difficult conversations but i've always wanted to try to do it with a good heart now i say that post being christian you know before i was a christian i really was just happy to poke the bear (laughs) to offend anyone, to cause conversation, to bother people. And after I started following Jesus and I read these strange words about loving your enemy, turning the other cheek, um, serving those who, you know, normally you would think should serve you, that totally reoriented how I thought about what it looks like to talk about difficult issues. It made me realize that Jesus cares about my speech. He wants me to speak with love and joy, peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so while maybe part of me wouldn't be surprised that I'm talking about some of these issues and that maybe I'm not super afraid of talking about these issues. On the other side, I hope 10 year old me would be surprised by the way in which we've tried to engage it, which is not viewing politics as a horse race as a game about, you know, who can win the argument, who can be right, who can be wrong, but more fundamentally about winning people to the cause of Jesus, to a greater kingdom, to a better politic that really does lead to human flourishing in local communities.
1: No, that's a uh, thank you for the, some of that backstory. I think that's really helpful. And, uh, you know, I'm thankful you're trying to to get into the mix there. I think, you know, I think you're right that there's uh, just ignoring the political world is not, not necessarily the best strategy. Um, and uh, there's definitely a lot of room for engagement there. Um, I am curious, you know, as you've developed this this podcast that you're working on now, or even before that, when you were just kind of struggling with the, que- you mentioned a lot of people came up to you with different questions, and that kind of helped trigger this. Um, you know what? What have you found has been challenging as you've been trying to set this uh, this these conversations up, whether it's, I mean, certainly through your podcast um, or conversations outside, like how do you get past some of the initial walls that go up, some of the initial, maybe some of you, even some words that are triggers for people of one uh, persuasion or another, what, you know, what are some of your strategies to even get people to sit down and start talking?
2: Yeah. You know, I think one of the most important things is clarifying your terms, your definitions. And so I've already used the word politics, politic a lot. And people hear a lot of different things when you say that. I I remember having a conversation with a guy and I was telling him, Jesus has a politic. You need to read the sermon on the Mount. This is how he's called us to organize our life together, how to deal with marriage and family and how we uh, organize our social structures, how we deal with enemies, how we deal with the problem of wrongdoing and forgiveness. He's got all this stuff about how we live life together. Um, And he goes, Jesus isn't political. I do not know what you're talking about. Jesus is not. Political, And I kind of started arguing with him, which I probably shouldn't have done. Um, but what became evident to me is that he wasn't hearing the word politic. He was hearing the word partisan. Mm. He was hearing me say that Jesus is partisan, that he has a political party that he subscribes to. And that's what a lot of people hear when they hear politics is, is partisan electoral politics. That's not what I mean when I'm talking about politics. I'm talking about how we do life together, how we structure and organize our life together, which is a very different question than partisan politics, in part because I don't think either side really captures the kingdom of God wholly, (laughs) entirely. And so we can't be partisan. The other reason is actually really simple. Jesus is sitting on the throne of heaven. Getting a job in the Oval Office for Jesus would be a demotion. Getting a job in the Senate for Jesus would be a demotion jesus is sitting on the highest throne he is the king of kings he's the ruler of all rulers and so one reason that we don't have to get so fixated on partisan electoral politics is because we actually know who's in charge we think about daniel with nebuchadnezzar you know here's a guy who's clearly not a great dude nebuchadnezzar he's murdering people he's uh, promoting Id- idolatrous worship. He's got a massive imperial war machine that's running over entire people groups in Mesopotamia. Not a good guy. And yet Daniel is able to work for him and say, long live the king, which had to be hard to say when, you know, this is the same king who ran over your hometown. Uh, but why is he able to do it? Why is he able to remain faithful even in this hard position? Well, again and again, Daniel comes back to the fact that God is the one on the throne, that he is the one who's in control of reality. And so even though it might seem like in the present, the Babylonians have won the day, and they're going to tell the end of the story, and history is always going to go in their favor, Daniel knows that there's someone greater in charge. And so, again, I think that's one of the things, at least in terms of strategy, I do is saying, look, we don't have to worry about partisan electoral politics, or we don't have to elevate it to supreme importance, because we already know who's on the throne. And what we're experiencing right now is temporary. It's not going to last forever.
1: Hmm. How when When you're hosting some of these conversations... How long does it take you, or what? I mean, maybe that's a bad question. I don't know, but um, I'll just say it anyways, and you can answer it the way you want to. But how how long does it take you to get past the pigeonholing, intentionally or not? Might not be. I mean, it's just how people think it. But you know, putting people into boxes, categories, to actually getting towards the crux of conversation. Like I, I, I mean, I love the, of course, the the title of Truth Over Tribe. You're but you got to get to the point of seeking truth. Uh, you got to get past the, the tribe. How, do you, how how long does that take? What are your strategies to get there?
2: Yeah, we, you know we, when we interview people, typically the people we interview are authors and thinkers. And we've read their books. And so we've already thought alongside them before we ever sat down and had a conversation with them. And the reason probably why we wanted to talk to them is because they're already kind of truth over tribe people. I mean, if you listen to our podcast, a lot of the people will start out the podcast saying, my name is fill in the blank, and I choose truth over tribe. And that's why we have them on the show is because they've already kind of moved past the tribalism to come to, you know, I hope a consensus around some true ideas. And so, you know, because we've read the books and because we know who they are, in some ways, if you pick your conversation partners, right, you can avoid uh, those, like you said, pigeonholing conversations in general. And that's not to say that people on our podcast don't lean left or right, but in general, I think... Most of the people we have, th- they understand that Jesus, if they're Christians, and they're not all Christians, but they understand that Jesus really isn't partisan, that, 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 that the throne of heaven is its own kingdom. It is its own partisanship. It is its own politic. And it's not going to be captured by human wisdom or human efforts on one side or the other. Mm. So,
0: Patrick, I, I resonate a lot with you because I, I unofficial, you know, Browncroft study, We're probably 50-50, just judging by the emails that I get and things like that. So I I guess what would be helpful for our listeners, especially the ones that are de-churched and unchurched, um, if you were to say, how does the Democratic Party represent Jesus and how does the Republican Party (laughs) represent Jesus, how would you answer that question?
2: Well, I I would start by, you know, answering which Republican Party and which Democratic Party, because the first place we have to start is the simple fact that uh, politics on both the left and the right look radically different today than they just looked six years ago. Radically different doesn't mean that there's no continuity, but the things I get to put that the things that both parties tend to put into the foreground In many ways, Christians kind of have to resist in general, right? So if you're talking to someone on, I'm answering the question opposite of what you said, but you're talking to someone who's really invested in the left and you say, hey, they're they're really pressing forward, you know, kind of a radical gender ideology. They're really pressing forward some of these LGBTQ issues in ways that might not be the best way to do it, right? And that's what they're putting in the foreground. There might be other things you can agree with, but that's going to be something you're going to have a hard time agreeing with. And the same thing goes for the right. Ever since the presidency of Donald Trump, populism has been on the rise now nationalism has been on the rise. But as followers of Jesus, we are exiles living in Babylon. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's primary for us. It's not our American identity. It's not our ethnic identity. And so when we look at kind of populist movements that are trying to Prop up a a national identity as being of supreme importance that needs to be defended against all other national identities. Which, by the way, those other countries that I guess aren't first. If we're going to make America first, you have brothers and sisters who share your citizenship in the kingdom of heaven in those countries, and you have more in common with them than you do with your with, with Americans who don't share your faith. And so, part of what I would say is both the parties have begun to foreground things in many ways that aren't super helpful in the dialogue in the conversation. Now, if we want to talk about things in general that that probably you know christians can find resonance with on both sides the historic democratic party has in general for example been uh, more open to, I, I, in the past, reasonable immigration policy. That, that could be an interesting thing to sit around and talk about. They've, they've wanted to allow dreamers, for example, people who are born in the United States who were brought there illegally by their parents to become full citizens. Well, the Bible actually has a ton to say about how we treat refugees and immigrants, and that should be a part of our politic. Um, and I think you can look at the right and you can see the way that the right, for example, is uh, pressing back in some ways against uh, the ways a radical gender ideology, which can be a social contagion is being applied inside of school systems. And I think there's something good there that we could say, okay, I-, I can affirm aspects of that. So again, I could walk through, but the other issue with partisan politics is many of the things that we debate over, we don't actually even have certainty over. Right. So the right says this is the solution to the problem. And the left says this is the solution to the problem. And the Bible doesn't tell us who's right and who's wrong in that circumstance. For example, both parties would say they care about people in poverty. However, the way in which they think those people should be cared for is radically different. In the past, again, this is kind of old Republican Party. The idea of compassionate conservatism was the notion that by you know deregulating markets and creating a free market where there's huge amounts of jobs and opportunities, that's been the thing historically that has lifted the most people out of poverty. Poverty. And so that's the thing that we want to do to care for the poor. Whereas on the left, they've been more interested in central government programming, welfare systems. We, we need the government to actively get involved in caring for the needs of the poor. Well, they both agree on something that Christians can agree on, which is we should care for those in need. But they have different answers to those questions. And again, in that case, that's not something Christians who are on either side of the, of the political spectrum should disagree about. Right. I mean, they, they can disagree about about how to do it, but they can at least say, hey, we, we have a central tenet that we agree with here, which is we should care about those in need
1: mm. uh, uh that's a I, I appreciated peter's question and i that's a appreciate you answering there and i i um, as i was listening to you i think that sort of got back to a bit of what I, what i was asking about before i mean i know um, for me personally uh, some of the the best uh, so I like, I like public policy and Peter knows this. I, I worked in politics for, um, some time and, and hopefully politics in a good way, in the good sense, not in the, <laughs> in the other sense that you were mentioning, but you know, um, some great conversations I've had over the years that I've really enjoyed are with, with people who, who think differently, um, on the methods, but with the hope, the hopes are often similar. Um, the end end goal, uh, whether it's helping people in some way. I mean, you mentioned compassionate conservatism and uh, and things like that. But uh, I've it seems like there is a there is difficulty sometimes now. Now, and this gets probably gets to the tribe part of your, the title of your your podcast. But it's difficult sometimes to get to. It seems like to get to the actual conversations without uh, without the weight of things that you may or may not hold to, but are getting lumped in on you on, on, if you start to even use certain words, um, or how you use certain words. You mentioned when you, when you start, what got you interested originally was your interest in justice. Even that word justice can have different messages to different people, depending on what comes next, and what you say, you know. So I'm just, you know, I I, uh, I love that you're having you're having conversations on your podcast with people who who want to to go there. I guess I'm curious, you know. You mentioned that some of the conversations you had in your churches or the church that you you were at helped spark that. How have you How have you used what you've learned in this podcast to try to help some of those conversations in the in a diverse setting to get people to start to. I mean, at the, at the very least, to start to listen to each other.
2: Yeah, you know, in some ways, it's actually been the other way around. I, I love the people in our church, and because we've always had a diverse church community, while, while it's true, it's been harder to hold that coalition together, but let me be really clear about what that means. It means that the people and the extreme wings of our church, the extreme left and the extreme right, they've largely left. Uh, they've they've gone to the church with the rainbow flag out front or the church with the American flag out front. they've left. They, they aren't a part of the church. but the vast majority of the people have stuck around and that doesn't mean that they're not on the left or right still. they're, they're just there's not in a place where they've been totally co-opted by a tribal, partisan identity. And so when I watch how those people uh, interact with one another and care for one another, it's given us all kinds of ways that we've seen that tribalism can be torn down. You know, I I could talk about generosity tears tribalism down. Kindness tears tribalism down. Um, Admitting when you don't know something tears tribalism down. There's lots of ways for you, just in everyday, day-to-day conversation to do that. In fact, um, just Oh my gosh, probably six months ago, we, at the end of church, we, we had a message about this and we we're talking about, hey, we need to fight partisan tribalism. Uh, and this is right before the election. And we gave everybody in our church a $5 gift card to a local coffee shop and said, we want you to go take someone out to coffee who's different than you. Maybe they've got different politics than you. Maybe they're a different generation than you. Maybe they're a different ethnicity than you. But we just want you to go out. And here's the only rule. You're not going out to explain yourself or defend your beliefs. It had a bunch of questions. You're just asking them for their story. Because where you stand, especially on political issues, has a lot to deal, has a lot to do with where you sit, where you're coming from, where, what your story is. And that was the whole point was sit down with someone, hear their story, understand their perspective. You might not agree with them on their perspective by the end of the conversation, but you will understand it more wholly and you'll probably will have built a relationship that can become a bridge to future productive conversations.
0: You know, I, I want to come back to the question that I asked you. Um, you you actually did a nice little circle. You started with the disagreement to agreement. And, you know, as I was preparing for this podcast, I kind of thought, you know, if there were two Bible verses that were political slogans for each uh, party, what would they be? So I'm, I'm just going to test this out. And listeners, I'm not saying that, you know, this is like the patron verse for each part, but I just kind of think the essence. So the essence of the old Democratic Party, I feel like I've, I'm always hearing love your neighbor as yourself. So that kind of at their best, they're upholding that policy of we'll pay more taxes, we'll do more because we wanna love people as if we were in their shoes. And as I thought about the Republican Party, I thought about the verse in James that faith without work is, works is dead. So it's kind of saying, hey, we have some personal responsibility here. And the reason I think that that's important, I'm going to kind of throw to you maybe what verses you'd put in there is, you know, there's a complete Bible. You can't just take one verse and kind of go from there. So I guess, number one, push back on me if maybe you kind of disagree, if that's kind of the maybe the essence of Christianity that each of these political parties are bringing or, you know, and um, maybe add two verses in there that maybe represent that. I don't know. What do you think?
2: Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I don't know if I could uh, find a verse to, to match with each political party. I will say this. The modern Democratic and Republican parties are far unhealthier today than they were 10 years ago. I, I, I will say that with a, with a lot of confidence um, and, and it's their rhetoric. It's not just the things they believe it's their rhetoric. It's the way that they're doing politics is incredibly destructive. Um, we have politicians now who rather than going to Congress to be formed and shaped by an institution so that they can do your job, which is to legislate. That's what a Congressperson does <laughs> is to legislate and you're shaped by the institution to know how to do it. Instead, we have politicians that are using that uh, institution as a platform to get on To Fox News to get onto CNN to get a huge Instagram following to get book deals and whatever else, they're hollowing out our institutions and making them dysfunctional, right? And so I like your verses as long as we're talking like ten, fifteen, you know, years ago, which you kind of said you're like this is kind of the the older version. And so so part of me wants to say like like we need to call our politicians to something better. It says a lot that some of the finest, best character politicians who were in Congress, many of them have have left right? They've resigned, they've retired because they don't want to be a part of what's happening in Washington. It's not to say everybody in Washington is a bad person or that they're doing bad things. I hope people don't hear what I'm not saying. But but to answer your question, there's a lot of different ways I can think about this biblically. Um, One is, you know, if you go back to the creation story, you see two different principles kind of at work with one another. One is order. God orders creation in Genesis 1. And the other is freedom, right? God calls humanity to a task, but he Freeze them to Adam just gets to name the animals. God doesn't say you name this one, this, and that one, that Adam names the animals, right? So you have order and freedom. The problem is with order and freedom. If you have too much order, you end up with tyranny you end up with totalitarianism. If you have too much freedom, you end up with anarchy. And the story in Genesis is of both those things, or really throughout the whole Bible, of both those things warring with one another in eras where order becomes too ascendant and freedom becomes too ascendant. And where I think that fits into our modern political parties is historically, probably not as much now, You know, Republicans have been the party of order, right? You think about phrases like law and order. And historically, the Democratic Party has been the uh, party of freedom. You know, you think about the French Revolution, Libertas. There's a notion of we need to free people. And so at their best, they're putting these two ideas which are actually both biblical ideas into tension with one another, which produces productive results. I'm just not sure we're so productive any now. And I think it's really interesting because you can really pick a number of other biblical concepts and see how um, really what ends up happening is one party emphasizes one to the exclusion of the other. Like uh, the Hebrew word justice, that whole word group, there's two different usages. One is punitive justice You do something wrong, you get punished. The other is restorative justice. Let's say someone doesn't have something that they need, and so you need to restore them so they have the thing they need, right? Well, you could say the left has historically uh, represented justice as restorative primarily, whereas the right has historically represented justice as being punitive. But it turns out we need both of those things. We don't need either or. We need a both and. So we kind of have to diagonalize between both parties. Oftentimes you're going to be like, you've got half You've got half. Not always because that, that could suggest this like weird, like everything's in the middle. And I don't think that's really the answer. I'm just trying to give some examples of how the Bible cuts across some of our categories. Mm. So, so, Patrick, one one thing I, you've said this a couple of
0: times, because um, our question is, why doesn't Jesus fit one political party? Um, and I just want you to respond to this because you've said a couple of times the modern Democratic and the modern Republican Party aren't what they used to be. I think most listeners would would go with that. Um, And I'm not saying that you're saying this, but I think that there could be a perception of it's so out of my control. Why would I even vote? Why would I like, or maybe I should just vote third party or, but if I vote third party, then that means that I'm kind of throwing away my vote. So I like, what would you say to maybe the politically burned out and cynical because you're still doing a podcast on politics, and you're not saying every politician is bad, but generally speaking, these two parties have gone that way. Like, I, I guess I don't hear you saying that, but I could hear our listeners kind of say, "Why get involved in the first place?"
2: Yeah, you know, I think this comes back to our definition of politics. There's two different kinds of people interested in politics. There's political hobbyists, and there's people who actually do politics. So, political hobbyists are people who spend a lot of time. On Twitter, on the news, reading about public policy, they can tell you the name of every senator and they know every little squabble that's happening inside of Congress. They're up to date on everything, right? But in terms of political action, really all they do is voting. Now, let's talk about people who are actually in politics. Of course, you could talk about elected officials. But if politics is how we organize our life together, how we work for the common good, politics is actually far larger than that. So when you go and serve at uh, your local charity that's serving homeless people or single moms or refugees or uh, parolees, that's political action because you are helping to organize a society to do something for the common good, right? Even your family, I mean, here's an interesting thing, the, 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 the Greek word for church, ekklesia, that, that word ekklesia in the ancient world was a political term. There were plenty of other like non-political terms they could have picked for describing a gathering of people, but they picked ekklesia, which would have been a description of people gathering for a political purpose, to do some sort of political action. And so what they were saying is, when we get together to worship, to read the Bible, to pray with one another, the King is present. That's why it's political. And he is shaping us to be a certain kind of people who are going to love our local community in a certain kind of way. One last illustration might kind of make the point. There's an old Charles Dickens novel. Um, I think it was Bleak House. And uh, he he tells the story of this lady named Miss Jellyby, And Miss is she lives in England, but she's profoundly concerned about orphans in Africa. And so she's constantly sending money and letters and resources to the orphans in Africa. And she's constantly hearing back and she's obsessed with them. There's just one problem. She has a bunch of children in her own house who she neglects, who she abuses, who she's angry at. And she never treats well. And I think that's what happens with political hobbyism sometimes is we've telescoped our concerns. So all we care about is what's happening in Washington. And we're neglecting our local community where we actually have the power to make some change. What I tend to tell Christians is, like, if you're exasperated by federal-level politics, like, me too. And if you think all you can do is vote every now and then, yeah, me too. I don't care that much about what's happening in Washington, in part because I don't have much power (laughs) over what's happening. I don't have much agency, but I do have a profound amount of agency in my local community. And so if you can stop fixating on what's happening in the Washington, D.C. horse race and instead put your attention on the living, breathing people in need who are living in your community around you, I think you will serve far greater political good in the long term of your life than you will if you read every news article that comes out about Congress.
1: No, hmm. oh, that's uh, no, that's. I really appreciate you sharing that. It seems like, I mean, there's often the conversation about you know what's downstream of what is, uh, and if you can change your local culture, would that change um, things that seem bigger and harder to to grasp? I mean, I think. Uh, you know politics is downstream of culture i and uh, Peter by the way, I loved how you were trying to g- grab verses there for the di- different parties. I don't know where th- I don't know what I would say for that either that's a a difficult one um yeah, uh so many things here in this conversation about um man things I'd love to talk about but let me just ask this question um i i i I am curious what you think so i I actually think that there are quite a few good people still serving in uh, national politics and in state and local politics. Um, there are certainly people who like to just get headlines. Uh, there are people who like to just poke. <laughs> um, there are people who, you know, there's all, all of that. Uh, and of course, uh, there's just part of human nature. There's a self-interest factor that people have in all sorts of fields, not just politics. I mean, name your field. Um, what do you, how much, so I, for the people, let's say, let's assume there's someone who has good intentions wanting to get involved. Maybe it's not in Congress. Maybe it is a more local uh, effort, but, you know, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like local politics can be even rougher than the national. Um, it can get personal very fast. Um, how much of the game is, is really shaping, like, versus if you have good people that want to do good things, how do they get past what is currently the game? Do you have, do you have advice for people on that? Do you have advice for people on how can they, how could they be a good influence on trying to change that game? So to speak, like what's expected of those who are in places of, um, of influence, uh, and also, and also maybe encouraging people who, who want kind of like what Peter was saying at the moment, they feel like maybe I should just sit on the sidelines because it's not worth getting into. How could you help how could they make a difference so that it would be something where they they do feel like they would want to get involved
2: you know if i was talking to someone who was running for state office or you know a civic office i I would probably give them pretty similar advice which would first be this uh before you even you know register and put your name into the ring You need to step back and ask yourself, what are some of the fundamental leadership principles that I am not, I I am never willing to compromise on? These are lines I will not cross. And I would say, go study Jesus. Go look at how he talks about power and leadership and service and words and write those things down and say, these are things I'm not going to do. And if you write them down, you're going to have a playbook that looks like you can't ever win an election. <laughs> that that's gonna be the net sum, right? If you say, "Hey, um, r- rather than being the one who demands that everyone serves me, I'm going to be the chief servant of others. Rather than being uh, unkind and vitriolic with my language, and you know, running smear campaigns, and you know, saying hard things about my opponent, I'm going to speak with grace and truth and kindness and love." You write these down. It's like, well, that's a great way to lose an election. And here's the deal: if you lose the election but keep your conscience. You had a way bigger win. That's the first thing. I have a friend who's said to me many times, he's a wealthy friend. He's very successful. He's met many, many successful politicians and other wealthy people. And and he's told me over and over he says, very few people can touch um, money, (laughs) very few people can, can touch wealth, fame, or power and not walk away corrupted. And so again, I would tell that to the person and say, hey, you've got to know that you are touching the ring of power. There's something here that can change you from Frodo into Schmeagel, right? You have to be cautious and you have to be aware. In other words, my whole goal would be be self-aware. Walk in knowing what you're getting into. Know what lines you won't cross. Have someone in your life who can hold you accountable. Like, whoa, you just crossed the lines that you can repent because you won't be perfect. But here's the crazy thing. Sometimes it actually works. For example, we've got a local state rep here in Missouri who was running in a very, very tight election. And um, he, he was the incumbent, um, but how he got into that uh, particular role was was complicated, but he was the incumbent. Uh, but every single poll out there said he was going to lose this thing. Um, what happened was someone moved from a different area of the state into his area. This person has a huge amount of political and financial resources behind him. He's And he was trying to primary, my friend. Um, and by all accounts, he was going to dominate, my friend. And his all of his campaign advisors are saying, hey, This guy's got lots of skeletons in his closet he's got lots of major issues. We got to start smearing. We got to start running some campaign, some, some ads showing what a bad guy he is and all the awful things. In it. And you've got to get out there and you've got to really attack him. You've got to be an attack dog. And, and he looked at him, he said, you guys remember what I told you when we started this campaign? And they're like, yeah. And he goes, I told you we were going to run a positive only campaign that he can come at me however he wants to, but I will only respond in kindness and generosity and I will not attack him. And this was because he's a Christian. He's a follower of Jesus. And again, going into the election, I remember to Him texting and saying, there's no way I'm going to win this, but hey, I kept my conscience. And he won by a large margin. I don't know how it happened. I'm not saying there's no promises like, hey, you follow Jesus, you're going to get elected. My point is you can break all of the rules and somehow, again, in the economy of God's kingdom – up is down, down is up. Things that you don't expect end up happening. And if they end up happening because you did the right thing, then you're going to be in a position to lead with character and to lead with compassion and to lead with uh, honesty and sincerity. And that's where my friend's at, who's now, you know, a, a state rep locally here. And so, you know, it's just a story to, to give an example of how I would encourage people to run. And I agree with you. I, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush. If people here heard me say, hey, everybody in politics is bad. I don't believe that at all um, at the national or at the state or at the civic level. Of course, there's wonderful people and every single level of politics you want to do good. It's a it's a mixed bag.
0: So um, I want to get super practical. So listeners, if any of you run for office. Um, and you follow what Patrick Miller said, like, please tweet us and share this episode. That'd be super helpful. So let's go there. But for the majority of our listeners, uh, they're they're going to talk with a mom, dad, brother, sister, maybe even a spouse or a friend that completely uh, disagrees with them politically. And, um, you know, you um, – I, I say this as a compliment – the terms that you used, you've been an equal opportunist uh, offender. So I think that that probably makes a good political podcast. So um, to the listener out there, that whether they call themselves progressive, Republican, conservative, or Democrat, you know, you just said that that the church that you serve at just gave five dollars gift card to go have coffee with someone. When I sit down with someone who I completely disagree with, they drive me nuts. Besides, and I think you'll incorporate this, besides Jesus kind of being our model and example, what are some practical tips of how that conversation can look?
2: Yeah, I mean, I would walk into the conversation and you could really actually write this down on a piece of paper and say, what are my goals here? Um, for example, my co-host and I uh, in our in our local town, uh, our school district took um, some middle schoolers to a um, event that had a drag show without parental consent. Um, and to be clear, I don't think the schools really realized what was going to happen there. And uh, unfortunately, they didn't respond well when the news came out. They kind of doubled down and said, we didn't do anything wrong. There's nothing wrong with our consent forms. Everything's okay. And parents are like, hey, I I might not even care if my kid sees that, but I do want to know ahead of time. And it didn't go well. And so Keith and I, we ended up writing a piece uh, in the news saying, hey, we don't have to agree about drag shows. That's fine. Um, But can't we all agree about parental consent? You know, can't we all say that just like you would want to have consent before you sent your kid to some sort of religious service, uh, someone else might want consent before their kid's sent to a drag show. Can't we all honor each other in that way? Now, I bring that up for one reason. One is, when you're having these conversations, if you can find shared values, that's a great place to start, right? We might not agree about drag shows. I'm probably not going to change your mind about it, but is there something that we can agree on? Finding shared values is a great way to build bridges. But the second thing is, after we wrote the article... The superintendent reached out to us, understandably upset, and said, hey, come into my office. I want to talk to you. And so we went in to meet with him. But before we went in to meet with him, we took a little piece of paper and we wrote down our goals. What were our goals in this conversation? And you know what number one was? Make a friend. That was our main t- – above anything else, number one was make a friend. And if you walk into a conversation with someone who disagrees with you, even if the plan is to talk about the topic of disagreement, I think your number one goal should not be win an argument – It should always be make a friend. And if you walk in trying to make a friend, you're going to walk in with way more humility, way more kindness, way more curiosity. And that's one of the things I try to do. Like if you're going to have that conversation, tell yourself, I'm not here to educate someone. I'm here to learn something new. And when you're talking to them about a topic, just assume they know something that you don't know. They have an insight that you might not have. And so it's great to admit when, gosh, I don't don't know what you're talking about. Or can you explain why you believe that? Asking curious questions, asking questions of understanding, like why do you hold that perspective? What convinces you about that perspective? That's going to draw someone out. And the crazy thing is, I mean, there's no promises here, but if you ask people questions that help them feel heard and understood, you know what they tend to do in response? They tend to ask you the same question. And now it's not you just telling someone what you think, it's you being invited into someone's life to share your perspective, hopefully in a kind, gracious, winsome manner. So those are a few things I would say. Find shared values, make your top goal to make a friend, and, and lead with curiosity and interest and wait to share your piece until you are invited to do so. So
0: hold on a second here. Um, You didn't clear up the story. So uh, what happened <laughs> You know, in that conversation with the superintendent? Because- listening I feel like I'm missing a few pieces it it seemed like you know you were trying to take a middle road to help people think you know how much can you tell us about what was he upset about and even lessons learned would you have done something different kind of in engaging this
2: issue yeah you know um he he wasn't upset because he Necessarily disagreed about parental consent. I think he was uh, superintendent upset about bad PR, if we're going to be honest. Um, He didn't like the idea of an article about the school district, you know, and Newsweek popping up and getting onto his radar, Um, which I understand. But, you know, to be clear, we waited quite a while before we said anything because we thought we needed to give time to process and people to make decisions. You know, and that conversation itself, You know, the only thing you can control in a conversation is yourself. And that's what Keith and I said when we walked in. We wanted to make a friend, and he was hot. He was upset. I wouldn't say the conversation on his end went super well. But Keith and I were able to walk out and say, hey, we didn't say anything unkind. We tried to build bridges. We tried to make ways for friendship. You know, and that's up to him to accept and take. And so, you know, I don't want to present, like, if you do this, it's always a happy ending. If you're dealing with someone who is belligerent, unkind, there's not much you're gonna be able to do to change them. But again, you can't control that. You can only control yourself. And maybe if you lean into it with grace, if, you know, given a month or two, they'll come back to you and they'll say, hey, I really messed up that conversation. I'd like a second shot at it. They'll never come back to you if you match their belligerence with belligerence.
0: You know, one thing that my wife says, my wife's a mental health counselor, um, listening does not mean agreement. And I think one of the largest issues that we have is, we feel this anxiety that we need to tell people where we are, whereas um, I'm gonna go a little boxing here. You know, Muhammad Ali used the rope-a-dope, you know, where, you know, just, hey, I'm gonna gonna get hit, I'm just gonna wait, I'm gonna tire the other person out. Now, I'm not saying you should go box, but I, I think the point is, is that when you really listen to each other out, there's a level of people kind of feel comfortable maybe to talk about those big issues, but that doesn't mean that you necessarily agree it actually i wouldn't say it gives you more power but i think it does give you more insight and influence the longer that you listen
1: i a, I, I totally agree yeah I, I mean i just i know we're supposed to be asking patrick the question but <laughs> I, I just jump in there too i mean i might add too i don't i think it, you don't even necessarily i think there's a lot of pressure in our culture to have a tweetable position on everything right away um whereas the listening doesn't necessarily even need to be, I want to bring you into my position. It's more, let's figure it out. You know, sorry, that was my, that's, a, that's two cents from Aaron Mercer right there. Right? <laughs> I don't think you have to have a position on everything immediately. A new follow-up no, podcast, I, I think,
0: two cents by Aaron Mercer. I like, <laughs>
1: anyways, keep going.
2: <laughs> no, I think, I think what you said there at the end is spot on. Um, you cannot be an expert in everything. Mm-hmm. And so it's actually really wise to know what you're an expert in and to not act like an expert in the things you aren't an expert in, there's this effect. It's been studied. It's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. And it's essentially the idea that the more amateurish you are in your knowledge, the more expert you think you are in your head. Okay, mm. So they've done tons of studies to show this is the case. If you ask someone who knows nothing about a topic, let's say immigration, do you know anything about immigration? They'll say, nope, I don't know anything about immigration. But if you ask someone who's read a few articles on immigration – who's very amateurish in their knowledge, they'll say, I know a lot about immigration. I'm practically an immigration expert. I just read three articles on it. And then if you ask experts in immigration, people who spent their whole lives studying immigration, they will rank themselves lower than the amateurs. And what they tend to do is rank themselves accurately because they can say, well, I know 10 people who know more about this topic than I do, but also 15 who know less than me. So I kind of fall here. So I'm going to give myself a moderate rating (laughs) in this way. And so the way I say this is, look, you have to know what you don't know, which is easy. And you have to know what you know, which is the things you spend a lot of time learning about. The, the place that's most dangerous is the things you think you know that you don't know. <laughs> uh, that's, that's the place of danger because that's the place where we're at our most amateurish and when we're where we're least likely to give a good self-evaluation. And so if you can accept the fact that there's only a very, very narrow gauge of things that you are an expert in and everything else you should probably be a little more curious about because chances are you're an amateur and you just have a lot to learn. You'll come into these conversations way more open-handed because you're not assuming that you have the issue entirely figured out.
0: Uh, Patrick, this was a this was a lot of fun. Um, you know, you could almost be an adopted New Yorker for how much energy you have. So you know, take that as a compliment. You know, I live. I, I live. I, I lived in Springfield, Missouri, and uh, they didn't quite know what to do with me from upstate New York, but still love the Show Me State. <laughs> Well, we, we close every episode with a question of what does Jesus have to say about this topic? And so the good news is Patrick, like a good podcast host and a pastor, Aaron and I are going to answer and you get to clean up whatever mess we leave. Does that sound good? <laughs> Sounds perfect. Who's going first?
1: Which I can go if you want. Sure. Yeah. All right. So No, I really love this conversation. Um, I really appreciate your time, Patrick. And... Uh, and, and talking with us and I'm, I'm glad that you have a podcast where you get to uh, press into these matters even more. Um, you know, I feel like it would be great to have that $5 gift card just to go out to coffee to talk more to I Feel like there were things that were raised in this podcast Peter I'd love to talk to you about verses uh, I, I don't know I'm not sure what I think about that and even like the crux of where different parties came from you know I, my mind immediately started thinking about oh man like the party of Lincoln I guess how would that not be freedom or you know a Democratic party on you know I started thinking about heroes of, of old too uh Woodrow Wilson and people like that but in any case I feel like there's a lot there and and the the point there is there I think there's there is room for that conversation, and there's, uh, I think, there's a beauty and a, and a healthiness to that sort of conversation. I think, I think uh, Jesus wants us to talk to people who don't see a hundred percent the way we do, and maybe we don't even have to just like that last point we we're just talking about. Maybe we don't, we don't have to have all the pieces in place to have a conversation like that. But it doesn't mean that the matters aren't important. Um, and uh, I, I think that's important the, the you know, this kind of gets Peter to your earlier point. Like, I don't think that, I don't think Jesus wants us to shy away from things because they might seem too hard. Um, but there is an important, there's an importance to engaging politics in the good way that Patrick was talking about in a healthy, humble way where you're actually listening and actually trying to find um, solutions for the common good, not for not for one's own self, and or to make a, a clickable tweet or something like that. So, I think that Jesus wants us to be uh, involved here, and um, you know, at the end of the day, I think Patrick was getting at this. At the end of the day, we're we're trying to serve Christ's kingdom, um, not not one party or another. Mm. Go ahead, Pete. All right, all right. The pastors get to clean me up now. All right. You know, I, <laughs> I, you
0: know, I think I. I want to take a moment just to thank Aaron because he is someone from you know, the Washington area. so just your grace and truth has been helpful. Um, I kind of want to go back to one of the things. Patrick actually talked about Genesis, you know in kind of describing each party. And I just want to use this kind of as a general term, but you know, there's a reason why Genesis 1 and two starts with talking about humanity created in the image of God. Um, humans have inherent worth and inherent value. That's a hallmark of following Jesus. But then Genesis 3, talks about the brokenness and sin. And so what makes Christianity unique is we hold these two things in in tension. We live in a broken, fallen world. Um, You know, everything around us is sinful, but we do live knowing that people are created in the image of God. And we see Jesus living that out, and he redefines that as grace and truth. And what I'm leaving with this conversation You know it's interesting. Whenever we would have a class on a controversial topic at Browncroft, there was outcries. Uh, You know, people would disagree and stuff. You know, we're past 200 episodes, and we've had people that disagree really politically. That if you know we had put guests together, who knows? Maybe even Patrick would have disagreed a lot. But there's something about listening to people, and I think that that's what podcasts do. But I hope that you're not just doing that on a podcast. I hope that you're doing that on a level. Um, with the people closest to you. And so listeners, I challenge you. We live in a fallen, broken world, but each person you encounter is created in God's image, no matter if they vote the same way that you do.
2: Hmm. Hmm. I guess it's my turn. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Oh, sorry. I should have thrown it to you. There you go, Pat.
2: I want to make sure. No, you're great. You're great. Uh, yeah. You know, I I love what you just said because it's kind of saying, you know, Jesus wants curiosity on one level, um, and I, I think that's a fantastic heart. You know, if if I could add, you know, what do I think Jesus wants? I think Jesus wants your your politic, your political vision. He 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 wants to be the one who dominates how you think about what it looks like to live a flourishing whole life with uh, not just your family and your Christian community, but with uh, your local community all around you. And he's, he has a vision for that. He He has a plan for that. He has a way of organizing our lives together that is beautiful and it's good. and It's true. And he wants that. He wants that for me. He wants your vision. He, he doesn't want to give it over to news media. He doesn't want to give it over to Facebook. He doesn't want to give it over to Twitter or Instagram, wherever else you're tempted to have your politics shaped. Jesus wants that first and foremost for himself. And so uh, that, I guess that'd be my answer.
0: Patrick, thank you so much. Um, where can people find you uh,
2: to follow you and
0: see more of what you're producing?
2: yeah if you want to check out the podcast it's truth over tribe uh, the book has the same name because we're not very creative so it's easy <laughs> truth over tribe um, and if you want to engage online uh, you can follow us on twitter uh, my twitter handle is just patrick k miller underscore and i'm happy to chat with anybody there i love engaging with people online awesome
0: well thank you so much to find us you can go to why got why um, you can click the subscribe button you'll get this episode and many others we thank you so much for joining us